Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to pick up in verse 5 here as we go through and I'll be reviewing our passage that we just studied through lesson 7. Uh, we've been all the way through Romans 8, 5 through 27, which for people who've been in the Bible study for a while, it's like, oh, that's not, we didn't even cover that much. This is normally, you know, we're using like a chapter and a half, but chapter eight of Romans is the longest chapter in Romans, and there's a lot to cover, and I wanted to just move in, and I felt like we could, and uh, because chapter 16 kind of leaves us a little bit light and breezy, so I was able to take some of those lessons and move them into eight and give us a little more time here in eight, and uh, so we have got a lot to cover still. And as always, the lesson is recorded. You can get this on my podcast or on the YouTube um, video later on if you want to listen again and find any heresy I might accidentally know. The Holy Spirit's got my lips. We're good. Um, and then I want to just say, if, if we have time, I'd love to have Q&A at the end. I know there's way more that um, I could be te- teaching on right now than I can possibly get into our time frame, unless you brought your sleeping bags and we're just going to have a little camp out. We want to do that? We can do that. No? Okay. Never mind. All right, Romans, um, beginning in chapter 8, verse 5. So a couple things I want us to think on. We're going to cover quite a bit, like I said. And the title on the screen there kind of hopefully wraps it up for us. Grace, groaning, and glory. Does that resonate with you? And, uh, of course, I'm a pastor's kid, so i got to have three words, and they all have to start with the same letter. You're welcome, Dad. <laughs> and uh, because that is just where this has taken us. We have been, we've been on this journey of grace, and we are in this passage now where Paul is helping us identify, thankfully, with him. And uh, because I think we can read through Romans and think, you know, Paul, you know, up there, and surely he wouldn't relate to my feeble faith. And yet he writes this and we realize we're all in this together. High School Musical. All right. (laughs) I can't not sing that, right? I have to sing that song. Um, But from where we've come from, if you would do this, and this might be kind of a fun just exercise. I'm not going to write this into the lesson. But if you think about it this way, go back through Romans 1 through 7. And if you only just underlined in some way, like a special way of underlining it, issues that came up, in those first seven chapters that are issues like problems and failings and the struggle and all that, you will have most of one through seven underlined. It is all a lot of the bad news so that we can appreciate the good, right? And so we get a feeling of relief and thankfulness as we move into chapter eight. And we have this always arching idea of God's grace and then eight, we start to see it um, relieving our, our, our hurting hearts in so many ways. And it, it just makes our thankfulness grow and grow, doesn't it? How much? Because if we didn't have the bad news, if we didn't realize the state of the trouble. And so he begins this trouble with this big, wide, sweeping trouble. Romans 1, the whole wide world's in big trouble. Romans 2, who kind of moves in a little bit on uh, religious Jews. Romans 3, hey, everybody else is as well. Even if you think you're good, you're, you're in trouble as well. And the wages of sin is, uh, is death. And we're like, oh, wow, you know, this is heavy. And then we get even harder and harder as we move forward into chapter 7, when we just feel like there is just no hope. Because I, I can't... I can't win this battle of this war that's in me. And uh, Paul identifies with that. We talked about that in in our review of the last lesson. So we get to chapter 8, and I shared shared this with us last time. 
And chapter 8 uh, becomes for us a bit of a... It is showing on the screen, right? Um, chapter 8 showed, gives us this, this soothing... <laughs> Yay. <laughs> and uh, we move in on this. And so as we, as we head into chapter 8, I want us to be thinking along a couple of lines. Number one, I want us to think about our call as Christians for discipleship. That we are being discipled with one another, with... with with God, the Holy Spirit, and that we are ourselves in turn discipling others. But there seems to be, if, if you track with me on this, there seems to be an uh, understanding in Christianity that somehow when you get saved, there's an option for track A and track B. Like track A are the really super serious Christians. They might end up as pastors or missionaries uh, they are on the front lines. We might think of them as just really out there and bold with their faith. They're, they're in ministry. They're super committed. Those are like the track A. They're really, we might call them Jesus freaks. We've heard that before, right? So those are like the track A. And then we're like, well, maybe there's this track B that I'm in. I said my prayer. Um, I accepted Jesus, but I don't have the hard life because I'm, I'm just waiting, you know, for the package at the end, right? I'm just like holding on until this all gets revealed. We might call them a cultural Christian, and within the church we even joke a little bit, we call them Christers because they come to church on Christmas and Easter, and there's that. But even those people that we might a little bit joke around with when we see them at church on Mother's Day or Easter or, or Christmas, we know in our heart, gosh, you know, it kind of would be nice to pick track B and get all the prizes at the end and maybe not have to deal with all the nonsense of, of this world or really move in on that and expect it. But of course, the Bible doesn't teach us that. The Bible is very clear over and over again. And Jesus in Mark 8, and I, I don't have a verse for you on the slide here, so I'll just read it. Jesus called the crowd, Mark 8, 34, Jesus called the crowd along with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wants to become my follower, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. No, he said, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me, because of the gospel will save it. For what benefit is a person to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his life? What can a person give in exchange for his life? For if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so there is no track A. There is no track B. It's one narrow path, and it's, it's a challenge. And Paul moves in in this passage because we, we know he's going to talk about the groaning. But the groaning would just be annoying and disappointing if there wasn't for the glory to come. Amen? So he helps us see this in this amazing chunk of scripture from verses 5 to 27. So let's go ahead and take a look at verse 5 here. Um, after we review this overarching concept that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this, again, is that, that comforting moment where when we hear that condemnation, we can go back to this verse and say, that is not from the Father. That is from the Father of lies and not capital H, uh, capital F, Father. And so we have this as an overarching reminder from the beginning of Romans 8 as we move forward. And we see verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh have their outlook shaped by the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their outlook shaped by the things of the Spirit. For the outlook of the flesh is death, 
but the outlook of the spirit is life and peace. Because the outlook of the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to the law of God, nor is it able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. No track A and track B. This is what it is. You're on track A with Christ or you're not in Christ. You're not even on the path, right? And so with this idea of setting one's mind on the things of the flesh is a lot like what John says in 1 John chapter 2. He says, do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So loving the world or setting one's mind on the things of the world, of the flesh, means that we're going to live for just the temporary things all the things that the world values. And we disregard God, we disregard eternity. And God's word makes it really clear. Listen, there's no neutral thinking. There's no neutral thinking. There's not like I'm just like in, you know, kind of a new age sense where I'm just like emptying my mind. That is not biblical. There's no neutral thinking. We're always thinking of something. And so this brings us back to the whole concept and the vision of this Bible study that we would let the word of Christ, what, dwell in us richly and that we in turn would dwell in the word. Why? Because we need to. Because what are we prone to? Wonder, as the song says, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We're prone to want track B and worse, get off. (laughs) We don't want to be on the track anymore. Because if the Christian life isn't challenging you and feeling like it's challenging, something's up. You should feel challenged daily because you should feel the struggle, right? Verse 9, you, however, this is us, those who are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, this person does not belong to him. And this is as much of a shocking, scary, oh my gosh, is that me? Verse, as it should be a confirming verse. Because we should, as you went through that study, realize that there is a way to be confirmed that we have the Spirit, right? And verse 10, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of the sin. But the spirit of, is your life because of righteousness. Moreover, if the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will also make your mortal bodies alive through his spirit who lives in you. You are no longer dead, right? You can hear the spirit. You can respond to the spirit's nudge and the spirit's call. And so he says in verse 12, So then, brothers and sisters, we are under obligation. This is such a great way to think of it. Highlight that in your Bible and and personalize that. We are are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. I I owe you nothing, flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. Like, why would I do that? Why would I continue to live in that way? I I owe them nothing. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So this idea of obligation, this should be the motive that we have for our life in the Spirit. And and let me just kind of outline a few things. What would be that motive? How, How does that look in our life to be obligated? Well, first we should realize and and ask ourselves really this hypothetical question. Why would I sin? That's not who I am. All right? 
It's an identity issue. If I'm, if I realize who I am in Christ, if I'm firm in my identity that I'm a new creation, why would I sin? That's not who I am. And the world and your own conscience wants to tell you of your sin and remind you that you can't get out of that trap and that cycle and let it define you. And we even have identity issues going on in our world, in our politics, in our churches. This idea of identity and you're identifying as, and we kind of joke about about how pervasive and silly it is right now, but people identify as this and identify as that. And we even have people in movements like this who want to have identity politics, as, as the words come to be said, make fun of Christians for being brainwashed because we have the identity as simply, I'm in Christ. And so I want us as Christians to really own that identity, that we're new creations. I'm no longer a slave, and we'll move into that concept a little more in a minute. I'm no longer a slave to sin. That's not my identity. Why would I sin? That's not who I am. Come back to that, cycle back to that concept. Next, and, and Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, verse 20, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God with your body. In other words, you think of it this way, I'm on company time. Think of it that way. I, he, he's the boss of me, turns out. We like to say, you know, the boss of me, he, my flesh isn't. God is. I'm on his time. I'm identified as his, so I'm on his time. I'm on company time because I was bought with a, with a price. And the third thing, we talked about this a lot in the last two lessons about how sin sucks and sin is bad, right? So that's another motive for life in the spirit. Sin's bad, right? It's not that sin, it, it, we, we get the sense sometimes that it's, we, we lose sight of how evil and awful sin is and we focus on the fact that we're just in trouble for the sin that we do. I might get in trouble. I do this all the time when I'm on the freeway. It's like, I want to go 75 miles an hour. That is a sin. It's breaking the law, isn't it? But uh, I'm more afraid of getting in trouble than I am of realizing that's not right. That's against the law. We should do things because it's the right thing to do, not because we're afraid of the consequence. But I can't live like that if I'm not walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. Next is... Sin is bad, but good news, righteousness is good. Psalm 33 talks about this a lot. Psalm 33 actually happens to be our Know the Word chapter for this week, so read it again. Read it with this in mind. Righteousness is good. God loves righteousness. Listen to what it says in Psalm 33. You godly ones, shout for joy because the Lord, because the Lord, right? So it's appropriate. It's the right thing to do. God blesses that. It, it feels good because you're in community with Christ in that way. Next, what's the motive for life in the spirit? Well, we have a calling. We have a calling. I have you know, a name tag. You know, I'm with Bob, but I'm with God. That's my name tag. We were called to be someone for God. Listen to what Peter says, how he words it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, 1 Peter 2, 9. But you, and this is you, listen to who you are. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. 
You were shown no mercy, now you have received mercy. So again, in terms of our motivation to not be obligated to the flesh, we are we have a calling and we have a purpose. We are special chosen godly people. And then um, in terms of acting out on that faith, we are motivated by love. <laughs> love. Second Corinthians chapter five. Listen to how Paul writes it here in verse 14. Second Corinthians five, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died, like Paul talked about in our baptism. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We are compelled by love. Christ's love that compels us, all right? And then finally, there is an aspect of what's our motivation? Well, we don't want to have consequences. So there is that motivation as well. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God's not going to be made out of a fool. For a person will reap what he sows. And that goes for everybody. Just because you're in Christ doesn't mean you're going to suffer. You're not going to suffer the consequences of your own knucklehead or willful evil behavior. All right? So positionally, remember, we are in Christ. We are in Christ. So this isn't a warning like, oh, better behave yourself and keep it perfect or out you go. This is no, you're saved. And we're going to really move in on this thought coming into this next lesson. Um, you're saved. It's locked in. It's an unbreakable chain that, that God has placed around you. You are sealed. But why? So why would you live for the flesh? All right. So verse 14 for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I just want to move it on one little phrase here on this idea of being led by the Spirit. Because if you're like me, um, you've either done this or you've, you've heard people do this, um, you have a sense that you are being led by the Spirit. Like in a moment, you just feel like, that, that was the Spirit. And we literally had that moment just a few minutes ago where I, I said, you know, what, what you guys experienced in Bible study and going through the beginning to end and coming out and, and having that affect you. That was me being led by the spirit. That's, that's no credit to me. That's just listening. And so that's a moment of leading of the spirit. So this idea is, um, it, that Paul's talking about here though, isn't that, um, on a small sense being led and nudged by the spirit along and, Oh, that was the spirit. Oh, that was the spirit. Oh, that was the spirit. I think Christians can err a little bit on that side and think every little thing like, Oh, the Holy spirit, you know, provided this parking spot for me. I mean, he might have, but to live like that, there's a, it can become problematic. So I want us to back up a little bit and see this verse the way I believe it was intended, that those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Leading by the Spirit is along the same lines as what Paul talks about in Galatians when he says that the fruit of the Spirit, he says, I say, live by the Spirit and you will not carry the desires of the flesh. What's the Spirit? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ, they've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live, and this again in Galatians, if we live by the Spirit, let us also behave in accordance with the Spirit. So this isn't led by the Spirit like he's going to lead you here, better be listening, he's going to lead you there. That can, that can be true, but listen, it can also lead you to despair. Because when you feel like you don't know what to do, you're like, well, maybe the Spirit's not leading me. Maybe I didn't listen. Maybe I missed the, the nudge and we can kind of get on ourselves a little bit. So be careful with that. And again, confess that to the Holy Spirit and ask for, for true guidance. And remember, this is Paul saying in a general sense, we're led by the Spirit. Why? Because we have the indwelling of the Spirit 
and we should be manifesting the fruits of the Spirit. And then he says, and this is such a beautiful reminder, our, our faith is not just this, a, a religion. And we've all heard that said, you know, I have a relationship, not a religion. And I think we might have gone a little bit far on the relationship, not a religion thing, because James says true religion is this. So we, there is true religion, but we've, we've really emphasized this um, and rebellion because of we're Protestants and we protested the Catholic Church, which it was ceremonies and religion. And so for several hundred years now, we've been really pushing back against that. So we might want to ease up on that. And it is a religion. There are certain rules. There are certain ways we need to follow, which is basically what religion is. But we do have a relationship with the Father as well. Why? How do I know that? Verse 15. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery, leading you again to fear, but you received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We are in relationship. We can cry out to the Father. All right. There is a sense that my before life, my BC days, before Christ, and, and and no matter what age you came to Christ, that was an age of bondage. That was an age of works. The only way that you could feel good was be would be to do good works. It was performance based. It's it's a dire situation because you could never be good enough. It's all based on your effort. That's slavery. We're not in bondage to that anymore. We don't have to live like that. So don't go back to that. Why? Because you're adopted. And we can cry out personally to our Father, all right? 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears punishment has not been perfected in love. We don't live like that anymore. We, have, we don't have that kind of fear in our life as Christians. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. And that should be a big, deep sigh. <laughs> because we don't have the Spirit himself saying, well, I don't know if you're a good enough Christian. I saw the way you drove yesterday. I don't know if you're a good enough Christian. I heard those secret thoughts. I don't know. No, the spirit himself bears witness to our spirit, our sensibility inside of us, that we are God's children. And so Paul's been moving in and teaching us and helping us see these big theological words throughout Romans, right? And we've, we've talked about redemption and justification and, and forgiveness, not a big theological word, but again, terms that he's trying to associate with especially right into these Romans, this new church, trying to associate, like, here's your vocabulary. Here's who we are. This is what it looks like. And here's our lexicon. This is how we, we behave. And here's the words that define us. And so he moves in on this next idea of us being adopted. And now we have a sense of adoption here in our American culture that is really different than the Roman culture. So let's move back a little bit in time and understand from that Roman culture what they, how they would have resonated with this idea of adoption. Adoption was part officially of Roman culture. They were big on, on this. And I'm going to forget, I think his name is Octavian. But um, so Julius Caesar adopted a son who became the next Caesar. It wasn't his own birth son. So adoption was part of, uh, I think it was Julius Caesar who was adopted by the Caesar before him. Anyway, I always get my Caesars mixed up. <laughs> so you can Google me on that later. <laughs> Don't do it now. But uh, yeah, so his, his son was adopted. So my point in being is when Paul talked about us, you've received the spirit of adoption, they would have perked up. 
they would have been like, oh, whoa, just like in our, you know, like what's going on today. Now in Jewish culture, adoption wasn't a big thing. It could happen, but it wasn't a big part of their culture. So Paul's really landing here on what's big in their, that moment. And this is the idea of adoption. So much so, ready for this, that a child born into a family and in this time period was just a child and wasn't a son. Was not a son. That's, that's a, I gave birth to a child, but he's not a son. He's not a part of the family until the father recognizes him as part of the family later on. And that's when that child becomes a son. And in Roman culture, that child might not ever become a son because the father might have chosen somebody else and adopted some other slave and made that slave his son. Whoa. So when I say that adoption would have landed on them, they would have been like, whoa, dang. Like adoption was something that the father did and it was a big deal. So we see it and like, oh, I'm going to adopt a baby. That's awesome. We just think about that. But this was integrated into Roman life and culture and family. That when you became a son, you're, you're, you're a son and it is locked in. And now you have full rights as a son. You're no longer a child. You are now a son. Isn't that amazing? So this is, in a, this is a big metaphor. This is, a, this is an important point that Paul's making here. Um, and he is using it to help us to see a change of status I want you to see that. When you said yes to the gift of Christ, you are a son. You are a daughter. You have been adopted. You're no longer a child. You are a, you are a son. You have full rights of inheritance. Okay? And this, I think Paul is also giving a nod to the idea that this is a legal category in Roman days. So this isn't something that just like, well, I've adopted you now. Like in our times, it's legal. You get a name change and you are officially part of that family. So the adoption of believers, this believer's adoption leads to spiritual inheritance. We get an inheritance down the road and that's obtained through our faith. In Galatians chapter four, verse seven, we see no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. It's like this equivalency that Paul lays out. And slice through the equal sign, no longer a slave, but a son and a son equal sign heir through God. And that's locked in, all right? And now I want us to also think about this idea of fear and the idea of the spirit of God. Think of it this way. Outside of Christ, I am animated by fear. I'm animated by fear. If that's, what, that's what is life inside of me. It's fear, right? But in, in Christ, as his son, right, adopted, his, his adopted child, right, I'm animated by the spirit of God. That's what animates me now, all right? But we have this now and not yet idea here coming up because we know that later on in Romans 8, 23, Paul's gonna write that we eagerly await the adoption of sons, await this and the redemption of our bodies. Like, well, I thought we already had it. Wait, am I waiting for it or do I have it now? Yes, both. It's the now and the not yet thing. I am a child of God. I am a son. I have full rights and I will have that fully completed in glory. All right. So um, verse 17, Paul writes, if children, then heirs, 
So don't just think oh, I'm a child of God and that, okay, I'm good. I'm a child of God. There is like benefits. Like this is the package deal that comes with this. Then heirs, namely heirs of God and also fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so we may also be glorified with him. This reminded me so powerfully of the story of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son. Because when the son comes back, the father doesn't have his arms crossed. How does the father have his arms? Open. And not only that, but he takes his open arms and he places them filled with that robe and places them on the son. And not only that, he gives the son a signet ring. Why? Because he's back. What was the son willing to settle for? Do you remember the story? I just want to be a slave in my father's household. I just want to be a slave. I, I've blown it. I'm so bad. I'm so gone. I would live better if I could just be a slave in my father's household. I just want to grovel back and maybe he'll accept me. And wouldn't his older brother have been happy with that? If you remember the story, his older brother would have been, yeah, I've been here all this whole time, working hard. You come back. He was really upset about that. So the son comes back and the father just reaches out an open arm, lays on the robe, lays on the signet ring. Ladies, this is us. This is what God does to us. We're not going to come back and grovel like slaves. You know, the psalmist says, I would just like to be a doorkeeper in heaven. I just want to watch the door. And that's, that'll be good enough for me. And God says, that's so sweet. You just want to be a doorkeeper in heaven? You come on in. You get the whole thing. You don't have to just stand at the door. Better is one day in your courts and a thousand elsewhere, the verse says, right? We know that. And that whole thing is, I, I want to just stand at the gate. And I would be happy just to do that. But see, this is the abundance of God's great grace for us. We don't just have to stand at the door and hope like, and listen in on what, the, what they're doing inside. Come on in. You're part of the family. You're my child. You get everything glorified with him, he says. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather, Psalm 84, if you want to write that down, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to do what? Dwell in the tents of the wicked. And yet we're not just doorkeepers, are we? We're heirs. And Peter says in chapter three, he says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. If we suffer for him, if we suffer him for him. All right, so we've got this to look forward to. We know who we are. We're in Christ, right? And then we get this little if, if we suffer for him. And it might cause us to stop and think like, am I suffering enough? I don't want to miss out because I didn't suffer enough. So... <laughs> But be careful, because that pushes us back into legalism. Because then what are you going to do? Define suffering. So, you know, North Korea, Christian suffering. Christians in America, suffering a little, or kind of not allowed to post on Facebook, you know, whatever. I mean, <laughs> there's a huge difference there. So don't go into legalism on that. Are you willing to walk that path and deny yourself? And let's not put a meter on what suffering looks like. Let the Holy Spirit lead you into glory on the path that he has laid out for you. And the suffering that you deal with is between you and the Father. But let's not look for a way out and avoid it. Let's embrace it and say, I am worthy that he would call me a son, and I am willing then to suffer for him. So Paul says in verse 18, For I consider... 
Our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. And Paul's got this exciting little special spot in life. And I've mentioned this before because remember, he was captivated up into what he called the third heaven, some kind of transcendental experience with Jesus Christ. And so he got a glimpse of something that you and I've never really had. So I love that he gives us a little window of that a little bit. Our suffering cannot even be compared to the coming glory. And when we talk about Paul, we know what he's, he knows what he's talking about. He has actually suffered. And then he says that that will be revealed to us for the creation eagerly waits for the revelation of the sons of God. That word I highlighted there in red is a, is the same word we get for the book of revelation. It's uh, apocalypto. It's, it's a revealing, it's an uncovering. Listen to how, um, the Phillips translation words, this chapter, um, words, this next passage in verse 19, too far. He says, um, the whole creation, again, this is the Phillips verse chapter eight, verse 19. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own, right? In Colossians 3, 4, Paul says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, it was for this he called you through our gospel so that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And glory is a hard concept, I admit, to get our brain around, but it includes all of God's promises that he's going to give us unfathomable riches, says in Ephesians chapter three, streets of gold, gates of pearl, mansions prepared for us. These are all just like limited ways that we can try to describe um, what it's gonna be like in glory. Paul's basically saying, you can't even imagine how glorious this is going to be. He says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. That word uh, futility is the same word that's used in um, Ecclesiastes when they translated it into Greek in the Pentateuch. Um, he says um, it means vanity, it's useless. The futile, futile vanity of this earth. God says the world is good. He did say that at creation, but now it's corrupted. It's like us. And he's uniting us with creation. In the same way creation is corrupted, we are creation. Creation, in a sense, though, is, is like a metaphor for the law. It's needed to accomplish God's purpose. The law was, it was creation. But it's not the final idea. The law's not the final idea. Jesus did not come to abolish it, but to do what? Fulfill the law. And the earth, like us, will be, in a sense, fulfilled as well. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he writes, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief... The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? He's like, look, this is all going to get wiped away. So let this be the question rattling around in your brain. What kind of people? I think that's an important concept for us to remember. When we consider eternity, it should reflect back and say, all right, so what kind of person should I be now? And that's what Peter asks us to consider. You ought to live holy and godly lives, he says in verse 12. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. The elements will melt in the heat, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. In Revelation 21, he says he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death. 
no mourning, no crying, no pain, for the order of things has passed. Revelation 21, verse 4. The order of things has passed away. All right, so verse 22 in Romans 8, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together until now. And this must make us feel, and I hope it does in a, in a sense, okay, good. I'm not just imagining it. Like, this feels really bad. This doesn't feel good at what's going on. And so Paul says, we know that the whole creation groans. Underline, for we know, in your Bible. Underline it now, because you're going to get to it in the very next uh, day of our lesson, day two, actually, of, of our lesson coming up. For So underline, for we know, verse 22, then you'll be a little bit ahead of what we're going to talk about in a couple of days. Not only this, but we ourselves also, who have the fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And I'll just move in on this idea of eagerly awaiting. I get it. We're eagerly awaiting. But we do still live here. We got to keep that in balance. And, and also, we don't just wait. How does he modify the word wait? Eager. We should live with enthusiasm. We should be eager. And, and that should be uh, attractive. Like the world should ask. When they see that behavior, when they see us being eager, what are you so happy about? What are you smiling for? <laughs> like, well, you have no idea, but let me just tell you. And then you can share them the gospel. What a beautiful way to be able to do that. If we truly are eager and we are awaiting our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved, verse 24, for in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? You know, I really hope I get to see Ruth today. She's right there. You see her right now. Not the hope. That's reality, right? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it uh, with endurance. All right. So they have this idea of our future glory that we're, that we're aiming toward. It includes the full re- restoration and renewal of creation. It includes our freedom completely and finally from sin. The future glory that we are looking toward. What do we have now that's a reminder of this promise? How do we know for sure that that's going to happen? This is so important, ladies. How do we know for sure that future glory is going to happen? Because past glory has. God has been faithful. Not only that, we've got the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul's making this point. It's so important for us to know that we are in Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's why it's so important for us to go back in the word and know that God has fulfilled every single prophecy that has needed to take place to this point in history. All right? So the indwelling of that Holy Spirit gives us a taste of what it's going to be like to be fully holy as Jesus was holy. But we're still living in these fallen, broken down bodies that are prone to temptation, sin, all the terrible consequences for that. But the Holy Spirit is the promise. No matter what happens, we're not going to be abandoned. We are sons. We are adopted children of God. The Holy Spirit is that down payment. It's a signal that God's going to complete the purchase. Does that make sense? We were bought with a price, and God's going to wrap up that transaction, transaction in glory. All right? So, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how we should pray. In the same way. In the same way that everything is groaning, everything is falling apart, everything feels bad, and everything has this deep longing, 
Well, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know how we should pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us, for us, with inexpressible groanings. Christ promised when he spoke to his disciples in John 14, you're going to get the Holy Spirit. It's better that I go. And if I was face to face with Jesus and Jesus said that, I would be thinking, you, you are, that cannot be true. This, this is really good to be with you. And Jesus says, yeah, but it's going to be so much better. You get to have me you know, with you, but the Holy Spirit's going to be in you. And you're, you've got power out there, but you're going to have power in here when the Holy Spirit comes. Ladies, we get to live in that power. Let's not lose sight of that. Go back and reread John 14 and how powerful and hope-filled John 14 is as a reminder whenever you feel discouraged and just the disbelief that the disciples must have felt to hear Jesus say, you think this is good? You're going to get the Holy Spirit. It's going to be amazing. And that's why he says when he ascends, don't go scattering yet. Stay here in Jerusalem, right? Because the Holy Spirit's going to come, Acts 2, and he does. So I use this idea in, in our lesson, if you remember from that day, and I talked about maybe the common experience we've all had at one point in our life of writer's block, right? Where you feel like, I don't know what to say. That is the Holy Spirit on the idea of prayer block. I don't know what to pray. And there's a couple of, couple of ideas with that. We don't know what to pray because we're just so stunned by what's happening in our life, we can't even put our head around it. I'm out, I'm out, I'm at a loss. I don't even know what to say anymore, God. This is so bad. I thought everything was going this way, and now it's hard left and it, wow and it just wipes you out you, you don't even have words you're like a gut punch and everything got taken away and I've been there I've been there at that that gut punch moment when everything got taken away and I I remember so clearly sitting in a room of other people and, and they, literally all they did was go around the room and say everyone can say their name and I couldn't even get I couldn't open my mouth I, I actually physically couldn't open my mouth I couldn't get words out I felt that if I opened my mouth in that moment it would be like if you put a drop of water on a little tissue paper and I would just dissolve. That's literally how I felt in that moment. I know this feeling. I had inexpressible groanings. I was in so much loss in that moment when that, during that season of my life. But there's another part of it that he, the Spirit intercedes us. We don't even know what to say. It's because we don't know what to say because our hearts are, are wicked. We don't even know how bad we are. So I'm busy praying for this to happen and that to happen. And really, I probably should be on my face, come splayed out and just confessing how evil I am to God. But I'm too busy, da 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 fix this, fix that in my life. So there's, there's both sides of that. And I want us to be able to say, thank you, Jesus, that you love me enough to give me the Holy Spirit and that he can express what I can't express because either I'm, I'm just dumbfounded by life or I'm just ignorant and whether it's willful or just on my own, um, not on purpose, of my own sin. And the Spirit says, I got this. I love that. I love that. Let me help you with that, the Holy Spirit is. Because why? The Holy Spirit is our comforter, head not our accuser. He's not there to say, are you kidding me? You don't know how to pray for this yet? He's there saying, I got you. Let's go, right? And we can get on our knees and we can pray and we can know he's got this and we can have a sense of relief and thankfulness right why verse 27 and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit who searches for things people in charge who are trying to find something that was lost that's who searches for things right who finds things the person who cares about the thing that was lost right that's god 
He is searching our heart. Why? Not because he's looking in the, the corners of the closet trying to find all the nasty things you've been doing. That probably will come up as well. But you don't get that sensibility here at all. And he who searches our heart, it's like he's fulfilling what David cried out in Psalm 139 when he said, search me, oh God, know my heart. And God says, I got this. I'm going to search your heart. He knows the mind of the spirit. And that should also bring us great joy and great peace and great thankfulness that he knows the mind of the spirit. Why? (laughs) Because the Spirit intercedes on behalf of the saints, that's you and me, according to God's will. I don't even know what to pray. Why? Because I don't even know God's will. How many of us have been in that moment in our life where we're like, I don't even know what you want me to do right now, God, with my marriage, with my family, with my friends, with my church, with my job, with my whatever, with the whole world. What is your will here? And I want us to hear that comforting, strong, powerful, capable voice of God saying, I got this because I got you. And so this chapter is a call to us to not just pray, but listen, to have a prayer life. A prayer life. Life in the Spirit isn't just a time that I pray. It's my life. And I can set aside that time to pray, but I should be walking constantly with that sense of God with the floodlight searching me. Because the Holy Spirit and Him, they know each other, they know me. And God's will will be revealed, not in the time that I necessarily want it, but in His time. And I'll grasp and understand and be so, so Let's go to God right now in prayer. Let's thank Him for that. Let's be grateful for that. And uh, turn our, um, our attention to Him and ask the Holy Spirit to leave us, to bring us through and, and help us to leave here today more assured of that than ever. Father God, thank you. Thank you, thank you for the Holy Spirit. You did not have to give us the Holy Spirit, but you did. He did not have to come in us, but He did. He did not have to indwell and power us, but he does. Lord, help us to grow in our, our awareness daily that we are in Christ, that we can be led by the Spirit unto righteousness and good works, into living in that way of strength and power because of your grace. Thank you. We praise you ahead of time for how you're going to lead and grow us and mature us here as women. We love you. Help us to do that today in Jesus' name. Everyone said, hallelujah, amen.